Immigration is vital to Canada's economic growth and competitiveness. The people we welcome fill the gaps in our labour market, bring valuable skills and experience, and have connections around the world. But they can face an uphill battle to have their credentials or experience recognized in Canada. And even though the pandemic has interrupted the normal flow of immigrants to Canada, the roughly one million we've welcomed over the past three years are here and eager to help. Shamira Madhani, Head of World Education Services Canadian Office, talks to us about immigration during the pandemic, where new Canadians are working and where they want to be working, and the role of immigrants in rebuilding our economy. She shares her view on how we can better recognize the skills and experiences of new Canadians. I'm Michael Bassett, and welcome to Bright Future. My guest for this episode is Shamira Madhani, Managing Director, Deputy Executive Director of World Education Services. World Education Services is a nonprofit organization that provides research about international education and trends and offers expert credential evaluation services for international students and immigrants planning to study or work in the U.S. and Canada. Shamira has been the head of World Education Services Canadian office since 2018, but she's been helping immigrants to Canada find meaningful work for much longer. She joins us to talk about the specific challenges new Canadians are facing during the pandemic, how they can help and are helping with the economic recovery, and how important immigration is to our economy. Shamira, welcome to Bright Future. Hi, Michael. First question I want to ask you is, how is the immigration population holding up in the pandemic? So, Michael, thanks first for having me in your podcast. Uh, This is a very important and timely conversation. And as you know, globally, We are facing an unprecedented situation with COVID-19 and the impact of the pandemic. At the height of the pandemic, we have 195 countries where the borders are closed. The flights have stopped coming. And basically, we're at a situation where global mobility has come to a standstill. And therefore, immigration in Canada has been significantly reduced since about mid-March. Our economy has come to a halt. Just essential services are continuing. So at this point, we know that 3 million people in Canada have lost their jobs, and the unemployment rate is 15%, and more so for women, and even higher for young people. It's almost at about 25%. Michael, let me just draw a picture for listeners regarding your question. So in the last three years, Canada received almost a, a million immigrants. 60% were economic immigrants, immigrants who are highly educated, bachelor's and master's degrees, and very experienced, sometimes up to 10 or 15 years of experience in their home country. We did a study to understand what the labor market attachment was of these immigrants who came in the last three years. And although most were employed, especially if they came in the IT sector, They were employed within six weeks after they got here. However, for those who came in other sectors, especially where they needed licenses, like the healthcare sector, engineering, and other sectors, it was really hard to get jobs using their experience. And so they basically ended up working in the front lines. So for example, tourism, retail, the food industry. March 2020, the pandemic hit. The first sectors that were impacted were the ones that immigrants were working in. 
So you saw quickly the disappearing of the significant sectors. And in fact, the first ones who got hit were the ones who were making minimum wage. And these were mostly highly skilled immigrants who saw their jobs disappearing, minimum wage jobs disappearing. The reality is that all Canadians are, are suffering and struggling, no matter where you're at. We're all working remotely. And for those of us who are fortunate enough to have jobs where we're able to, to work remotely and still contribute, it's the immigrant population who basically have been impacted where what they can contribute and are able to contribute in the front line as cleaners or even in essential services, they're trying. But most others are really struggling with not only being able to use their skills and experience that they brought, but now being unemployed. So that's just generally what I've heard and what we've seen at EdWES. You talked about your study and the labor market connection of the immigrant population. Does that connection have an impact on their ability to benefit from programs like the CERB or any of those supports that are available for Canadians to get through this period? What we do know is that because of the emergency orders, majority of us were asked to, to stay indoors. What happened with new immigrants is that either they basically had to make a living and continued working in the front lines, for example, delivery of food. And so therefore, they weren't eligible for, for CERB. The other thing too is that for those that could have been eligible, they didn't work long weeks or the, the number of hours that would be required to be eligible even for employment insurance, let alone the stimulus package. So that was right at the onset. However, Michael, the federal government realized that we have a very large contingent of immigrants who would not have met the criteria either for EI or CERB. By week six or seven, they started opening up the criteria and more people became eligible that the federal government was being very flexible. But I'm not sure whether everybody has been eligible or that they didn't have a choice because that funding coming in didn't really pay the rent. And so some are still out in the front lines and continuing to work at two or three jobs just to pay the rent and make a living. Now, I don't want to leave the impression with you, frankly speaking, that all one million immigrants are in the same place. We have many immigrants who are contributing in other ways, who have good jobs and who are volunteering and paying it forward. But there are others, as I indicated to you, mostly women, and those who might be racialized minorities and others, refugees, who are suffering and struggling. It's always so difficult to talk about people because there are so many individual realities within the experience of the immigrant population in Canada. So I think that's a good clarification. We know that immigration has been such an important part of Canada's growth strategy. Just days before the coronavirus became real for us back in March, Ottawa announced a plan to welcome a record number of new permanent residents. We at the conference board have done a number of studies. The one that I would point people to is that we can't go it alone. Our analysis says one third of our economic growth rate between 2018 and 2040 could come from immigrants. As you said at the beginning, travel has really been shut down and immigration has also been shut down. The immigration population that was supposed to be coming to Canada over these past months and over the coming months as the coronavirus continues to 
affect our travel and our businesses, that is going to be having an impact. And how serious do you see the impact we're facing on the economy as this drags on? That's a really uh, important question and pretty critical right now uh, for us to pay attention to. Immigration plays a significant role in ensuring that Canada remains competitive. In fact, Canada has what's called a points-based managed immigration system. So we've been very deliberate in terms of the points that we award to immigrants who are coming as, as, as economic immigrants. 60% of the immigrants who come and we get about 300,000 a year, 60% are what they call in the economic class. And what that means generally is that these individuals get points for being young, for speaking English or French fluently, for basically having skills, whether it's education or experience, and, you know, some human capital skills. So they might have relatives here, et cetera. That's a managed process so that when individuals actually end up coming to Canada, they can integrate into our labor market fairly quickly. And the reason why we have a managed immigration process is because we depend on immigration to fill our labor market gaps. We have an aging population. We have more people retiring than births, and we don't have as many young people entering the labor market. Over the last three years, as I indicated, a million immigrants highly skilled who contributed to our labor market in a very substantial way. You now have a situation where the borders are closed. And what's going to end up happening, and we've already seen it, is that as fewer and fewer people are being processed to come in because embassies are closed and people are really worried about even coming, we have infections here too. You are going to see a significant impact on our labor market because right now we might have a very high unemployment rate, but we're already starting to see recovery. So before we're in a crisis stage, we are in what I would call a recovery stage. And then the third phase will be rebuilding. And when we get into the rebuilding stage, we will need people who can hit the ground running. And we don't have enough people who are going to be able to fill those jobs. In fact, we see a, a pretty significant impact in terms of immigrants who are not going to be able to come through as quickly. A recent RBC study that was done already shows that as a result of the pandemic, we anticipate that we'll get half the number of immigrants. They're expecting potentially maybe about 177,000. We already know that in the future, 100% of the labor market will be filled by immigrant skills. And if you have this situation right now, I think it's something that we and employers have to be pretty intentional about, is how are we going to manage? Because if we want to remain competitive, we need to have our labor market gaps filled. And so this is something that I think is basically, uh, we're playing it out, we need to be intentional. And we could talk a little bit more about some ideas that we have at World Education Services so that as we move into the rebuilding stage, what are some of the things that we have to do, some of the practical steps that we have to take to ensure that we don't get into a pretty critical stage and our GDP is going to struggle, etc. Can we catch up? Is there opportunity for us to welcome 
more Canadians once this is over? Or do we have systemic challenges that limit us in terms of the number of Canadians that we can bring into Canada? What I have seen the federal government do even in the last maybe 10 to 11 weeks is the flexibility and a more flexible approach. Initially, all the borders closed, the flights were not coming in, and the federal government was pretty adamant around the criteria as to who could come in. And then more recently, I've seen the flexibility and the opening up of criteria. So as an example, when we look at international students, and in fact, international students play a really significant role in our economy. Because, in fact, they not only generate revenue for our post-secondary institutions, it's almost $6 billion. They also support our local communities because as they go to our local colleges and universities, they're the ones who are renting houses and apartments, making sure that our businesses are robust, etc. Well, if international students don't come in, then these smaller communities, especially in outlying areas, are starting to struggle. So what the federal government did is said, you know what, you don't have to be in Canada physically. We will actually accept for you to do online courses, and that will count toward, for example, immigration. So that's just a, a really good example. Also with temporary foreign workers, where if they were already in Canada, rather than the criteria for them to leave the country and come back again, they said, we will expedite the process so that we can make you permanent, so you can start contributing to the economy. My perspective is that I think that the federal government, or actually I know that the federal government working with the provinces is pretty aware of the skills that immigrants bring, understand that health and safety of Canadians is paramount, but is also being flexible because, Michael, the reality is that it's not just Canada that's competing for this talent. Australia is competing. UK is competing, as are some other countries, European countries. And so we want to be there in the forefront. And our policies, immigration policies, labor market policies are pretty progressive. What we want to do is remain open to people who want to come because of the kind of, of society that we have, an open society that's inclusive. And so I feel like as though, you know, it's a step at a time in terms of encouraging more people to continue to see Canada as an attractive destination. You talk about the attractiveness. I think that's such an important part of the immigration story, is that we are competing for the best population that is looking for somewhere to, to resettle and, and to live. And you started out talking about individuals that are highly educated that can't get the recognition of their education or experience in Canada, what are the sectors that you feel that highly educated immigrants can play a bigger role in supporting our economy through the pandemic and into the recovery? These are about people that are here already that have experience that maybe isn't been recognized in the same way. Top of mind for everyone today is what's happening on the front lines. When we talk about front lines, we go into retail, groceries, etc. The most critical sector right now is the healthcare sector. And it's a thankless job for frontline healthcare workers, Canadians, including immigrants, who are playing a significant role in trying to flatten the curve. One of the areas where we think that there's a huge opportunity 
is in the front lines in the healthcare sector. When you ask the question on which sector is it where highly skilled immigrants are underutilized, and it's the healthcare sector, unfortunately. What we do know in a survey that we did is that individuals who came in in the healthcare sector, and especially women who came in the healthcare sector who might have been highly qualified as registered nurses, medical lab technologists, even doctors, could not enter that occupation because it's a long process to get licensed. It's expensive. You need supervision on the job. You know, there are issues around funding for residential spots, et cetera. And so they ended up working in the front lines as diet aides and personal support workers. From our perspective at World Education Services and some of our partners like OCASI, which is the Ontario Council of Agencies Serving Immigrants, TRIAC, which is another organization that works with immigrants, we felt that here is an opportunity to showcase the skills that immigrants have brought into the country and individuals want to support frontline. They're Canadians. They want to support the healthcare sector. And so here's an opportunity to utilize the skills in the frontline, whether it's in the hospitals or long-term care facilities. And so what happened almost immediately as soon as we said, you know what, we have a million people and probably about 40% are in the healthcare sector and they want to contribute. I have to tell you that I was heartened that the long-term care sector immediately took us up on it and said, yes, where are they? We could really use their skill sets. And without getting into a lot of detail, what has happened already is that there was a website where government put up a tool where people could register to contribute to the front line as well as uh, the long-term associations. We had a number of, of internationally trained who offered to go in and support the healthcare sector. My hope is that that is opening the door. They will work in the sector. They will showcase actually what they can do versus just what's on paper. And that's going to open doors, which is going to be more systemic in nature because it's a systemic issue. It's an issue of where we think that the standards that people bring from other countries is lower. And it really isn't. It's just a bridge that people need to showcase what they can do. Because, Michael, in fact, what we do know is some of these experienced health professionals, for example, work in chaotic situations, in war zones, in camps. They can do work with very few resources and do it really well. And they're willing to support the country right now during really challenging times. Essentially, when there's a will, there's an opportunity to find a way. And I think that we've all heard the stereotype of a doctor driving a cab right. or driving an Uber. We have a systemic issue that is creating a barrier in recognition. And there are likely good reasons on both sides for this. We are seeing progress and an opportunity to move that forward. And so that's a great example of it. Uh, Michael, may I just, you put something on the table that I think it's important for me to address in terms of their issues on both sides. And the way I've talked about this issue is that it has to be a balanced approach. So you have licensing bodies that have to have entry to practice requirements that meet the highest threshold and standards, because we want to make sure that whoever gets licensed or certified whether they were trained here in Canada or another country, that they meet our standards. On the other side, we need to make sure that those entry to practice requirements are fair 
neutral and bias free so that you don't put additional barriers that are not necessary to actually get licensed and provide a service to Canadians. For me, it's not even about perspectives or opinions. It's a balanced approach of basically standards that we do need and fairness in terms of how we assess people's skills so that they can also be of service to Canadians. So I think it's really important to talk about that balanced approach every time. Thanks. I appreciate the clarification. It is important. This question of balance and bias, it's really on everyone's minds right now. We have all watched in horror the eruption of anger in the U.S. around racialized Americans. And it has really sparked a lot of discussions about racialized people in Canada. What has your reaction been to the development of this story? This is a time when people all around the world are shocked, disturbed, and and frustrated. I feel the same, Michael. I feel angry and appalled. Discrimination based on one's race, color, gender, sexual orientation, even country of origin is totally unacceptable. And such grants should not be the basis for differential treatment or inequality for that matter. And I feel the pain of the friends and family of the victim and all the people who are protesting in the streets, whether it's in the U.S. and here in Canada. And for me, I strongly believe that the color of your skin should not dictate how you're treated. The reality is that we're all human beings with the same aspirations in terms of what we want for our children, for our families, for our society. And the fact that somebody happens to be a different color and therefore you behave differently, I think is totally, totally unacceptable. We know that systemic discrimination exists in the workplace, in the community, and elsewhere. And it's a serious and important issue. And I believe that Statements are important, and we've seen a lot of statements from from leaders from across the two countries at very senior levels, and those statements are important. But I believe that those statements have to basically then be translated into real action on the ground and practical steps. I ask myself what that really means. If you have a leader who's putting a statement out, that it is important to them in terms of fairness and equity, and that Black Lives Matter, just as an example, then I would ask myself the question, and I bring my experience as the Chief Diversity and Accessibility Officer for the Ontario Public Service. And this is where we said, who sits at your table at the leadership table in the decision-making table? And who makes decisions around the lives of people? And what kind of policies are you putting in place? And how do we make sure that we don't let stereotypes dictate our actions? And how do we make sure that, you know, we are very intentional, that we know what our stereotypes are, and we don't use that lens to make decisions about who we hire and how we promote? And so for me, I think that statements are important, and I would suggest that employers are going to listen to this. Please continue with the statements, but also take it one, two, or three steps further. And let's make it really practical. And let's look at who's around the table, who's making decisions, who we're hiring, who we're promoting, and how we're going to make everybody feel included, no matter who they are. 
whether they're LGBTQT, young people, experienced people, black people, South Asian people. So to me, that's where it actually starts. It is so important to connect the two ideas. Many immigrants are racialized Canadians, and they experience racism and unconscious bias in their lives and their work. We know that explicit racism exists in Canada, and many are working to bring attention to the ways in which race is a part of an everyday reality for so many Canadians. But beyond that overt racism, that piece that you talk about around unconscious bias and the ways in which racialized individuals are experiencing bias and how individuals or systems aren't even aware necessarily, that's why the unconscious piece of it, of the bias that's coming into the hiring decisions, the promotion decisions. How important is unconscious bias in the reality of immigrants to Canada today? So that's a really um, deep question that you're asking me. And, you know, I don't think that in the next even two or three minutes, I'm going to be able to to get into what's historical, whether you talk about indigenous communities, about African-Americans, slavery, the, the, the whole thing. I happen to be Muslim, so the whole issue around being uh, Muslim and you know what that means. So for me, I think that the most important from a very practical perspective is as follows. All of us actually grow up with stereotypes and biases, unfortunately. So, you know, you could grow up in a family where music is important. And in another family, music is basically not important. You have to go into sort of a technical field. And you come up with those biases and then you use those biases as you see somebody who is a musician and you go, that's a soft skill. But truly, I think that the way to start is being really intentional around understanding that you have a stereotype and don't use that stereotype to take action. And as long as you understand that it's a stereotype that you're working with, then you're not going to move forward. So for me, even when I think about immigrants, and if somebody speaks with an accent, or they happen to come from a particular country, it's really important for employers and others to realize that just because they happen to come from that particular country, it doesn't mean that the standards are lower, because that's what media might tell you. Understand that the stereotype that you bring, put it on the side, Treat that individual as a human being and make the right decisions that you would need to make for your business. What should be most important is what are you trying to do in terms of your business? What kind of skill set do you need? And then are the skills relevant to what you're trying to do rather than what is the school they went to? What is their name? Do they speak with an accent? Because in my mind, competitive jurisdictions actually do well because diversity is the strength. And diversity is about everything that we've just talked about, but inclusion is about including people in the workplace in a way that we're all going to progress and remain competitive. So that's as practical as it can get from my perspective. Do you have any thoughts on the idea of removing identifiers on resumes to get over that unconscious bias that might be determining whether they evaluate one country's education versus another as being more relevant? Studies have taken place that show that if you remove the name of the individual and if you remove where the individual studied and then you go through the resume looking just at the skills and the number of years, etc., that in fact 
people get hired much more quickly because in fact people have removed any kind of biases people don't just automatically say i am going to wake up this morning and discriminate what they're just trying to do is use their perspective to make decisions i think that it's a really good idea as i said studies have shown have demonstrated that if you remove the identifiers and then you take it to the second level you end up hiring a lot more people were successful and then the business is successful so i think that every employer should consider doing that because as i said it's about the bottom line it's about getting the right skill sets into the workplace and it's about hitting the bottom line i think it's the right thing to do thanks for that i think it's so important when we think about the recovery stage and making the most of the population that we have here and the education and experience that they have as we enter the recovery stage, what do you hope to see in terms of supporting or fully engaging new Canadians in the economy? At World Education Services, we have a three-pronged approach that we're going to be very focused on in the next 18 to 24 months during the recovery and rebuilding phase. The first is let's build an inclusive recruitment and hiring process that incorporates immigrant talent sources. So what that means is as I indicated to you earlier on we have a million immigrants who are already here in Canada and we want to make sure that we are able to utilize their skills and experience we don't want them to be left behind we want to work with employer associations like the conference board what I'm doing today and others you know the chambers of commerce and employers to make people aware that they're right here in front of you and that they have the skills. So you know we've had a Twitter campaign which we engage in with our colleagues from across the country just to talk about what this is and where we can access this talent sources and we'll be doing a lot more of this webinars articles etc. So that's the first prong. Do you want to share the hashtag for folks? It's immigrants work. Hashtag immigrants work? Yes. Perfect. Thank you. The second prong is really let's catalyze innovative and scalable solutions and tools that enable better recognition of of skills. So what I mean by this concretely is rather than just looking at somebody's academic qualifications which in fact employers may not even be looking at as they're rebuilding is can we have tools where we are assessing somebody's skills and transferable skills? and what does that look like very concretely because there should be no excuse or i actually don't know what you can do what wes is going to be doing is looking at where the best practices are what tools have worked what has been successful and sharing this amongst our partners and and others we really want to galvanize people to do something that's going to bring people into the workforce fairly quickly using the skills and experience they have and then the third part which is important which i've talked to you about is that we want to make sure that we are also focusing on our vulnerable populations because as we talk about highly skilled those who can self navigate whose language proficiency is great what we do know is that there are populations who literally are struggling right now to put food on the table they could be refugees they could be young people whose parents were refugees they could be women who we know got impacted pretty significantly because of covid 
what do we do with these populations where we need to support them to get back to the workplace, even if it's any job right now. Our focus in this area is to make sure that we don't leave anybody behind. And what can we do where we can be pretty creative? So could we, for example, have refugees who have lost their jobs to move into the trade sector where we will need them as the construction is going to restart? So that's another area that we're going to focus on. For me, there it's 18 to 24 months, making sure that nobody gets left behind. There are a million people in front of us. Let's make sure that we leverage the skills and that we're all in this together. And let's make sure that our vulnerable populations don't get left behind. We have to bring them forward together at the same time. Shamira, what makes you optimistic that the immigrant population in Canada is going to be able to contribute the most it can to our recovery? What I've already seen is that when I think about the, the various, what we call immigration employment councils across the country, they have galvanized a number of different groups and agencies to work with us to make sure that immigrants are at the forefront. But what's so heartening is that we didn't need to do that on our own. It's not like as we can say, do this. We have watched different groups, immigrant groups, whether they're individuals or others who are saying, we're here to help and we want to be part of the recovery. And they don't say we're immigrants or not. They want to be part of rebuilding a Canadian society that they chose to come to, that they made decisions to come to because they wanted to do better for themselves and for their children. And they're saying, we're here to basically lock arms with you and make a difference. An example that I'll give you, and it's a very micro example, is that when I talked about the healthcare sector, there was a choice. They could either volunteer or they could go into paid positions. What was fascinating for me is many actually offered to volunteer. They didn't have jobs, but they volunteered to go and help in the front lines because they felt this was the right thing to do that Canada opened doors for them and that they were contributing back again. So I feel very optimistic that you have immigrants who are saying, we came here, we're Canadians, and we're going to be together working with you and with the different levels of government to move into the recovery stage in a way that's going to make Canada a leader again. Immigrants are such an important part of our economic story and the growth of the country. Thank you so much for talking to us and helping us understand a little bit more of the picture. I just want to thank you so much for being part of this podcast. I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this because basically the conference board is the first in terms of our tour of making people aware, employers and others, as to the importance of immigrants and what they bring to the economy. So thank you for inviting me. You've been listening to Bright Future by the Conference Board of Canada. This series is produced by Jen DeHamel. Nancy Nguyen is our audio engineer and Andy Joy is our writer. Ideas were contributed by Rob Collins and Aaron Brophy. I'm Michael Bassett and I'm the host and executive producer for this series. The views expressed by our guests are theirs alone and do not reflect the Conference Board's opinion. For more podcasts, videos, commentary and ideas, visit conferenceboard.ca.